Well, as we get prepared to uh, study God's word, once again, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, this is, um, this is your word, God. Uh, this is, uh, these are your people, Father. This is your church, uh, Father. And so that means this is your time, and this is the message that you want to get across, Father. And so, God, I pray that I would uh, get out of the way, and I pray that the message that you want to be received this weekend is the one that is taught, Father, and that you would change us by the power of your Holy Spirit and through it. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, uh, as uh, John said, as uh, you could tell from the video, we are uh, resuming our series that we've been in through the life of David. So some of you may not know this, but back in February, we started a sermon series uh, through the life of one of the most famous individuals in the entire Bible, and that is a man by the name of David. And we spent 10 weeks in this series before Easter, then we took a break for Easter in our trending series and, and, and Mother's Day, and now we're going to resume this series again. And as was said, unfortunately, we, we don't pick up this series in a very positive uh, place in David's life. In fact, today we're going to look at what is probably the darkest moment in, in David's life, and that is uh, this, this famous story of David and Bathsheba. And I think the most accurate thing that I can say about the message today is that every single one of us needs to hear it, okay? Every single one of us needs to hear uh, the, the message that we have today from God's Word. This weekend marks a, a little bit of a unique weekend for me. Um, this July will mark five years that I've, I've been at Friends in, in the role that I'm in right now. And this weekend will be the first weekend that I've actually preached on the same passage of Scripture twice. So some of you may remember uh, we did this series called The Story about three or four years ago. And uh, in this series we looked at the whole narrative of Scripture, the whole storyline of Scripture. And in that series we spent a couple of weeks in the life of David. And I preached the second message in David's life, and that was the story of David and Bathsheba. And I distinctly remember the feeling that I had at the end of preaching that particular message. In fact, I, I remember uh, getting in my car, and as I was about ready to drive out of the parking lot on Sunday afternoon, I remember the feeling that came over me, the thought that came to my mind was, I, I wish I could do that again. I wish I could have a second shot at, at teaching that, that message. And the reason why I thought that is because there is a feeling that came over me that, that I don't get that often, but I have gotten once or twice before. And the feeling that came over me was, I, I think I missed it this past weekend. I think I missed the main lesson that the story of David and Bathsheba is meant to get across to us. You see, that particular weekend, I emphasized almost exclusively, in fact, I talked about the grace and the forgiveness that David receives for his actions. We will see in this story today that David commits some pretty big sins. But for those sins, David is forgiven by God. And I use that as an opportunity to talk about the fact that there is no sin that we can commit as a Christian that God cannot forgive us from. And listen, is grace and forgiveness a part of the story? Absolutely it is. Uh, David is forgiven for what he has done. And there is no way to properly preach the story of David and Bathsheba without talking about the grace and the forgiveness that David receives. And, and we will see that in this message, by the end of this message. But although grace and forgiveness is a part of the story, the question that I had in that moment was, is it the main part of the story? Is the message of grace and forgiveness the main lesson that we are intended to get from the story of David and Bathsheba? And that Sunday afternoon in my car, I realized that I don't think it is. And that has only been confirmed to me as I have revisited this story and studied again over the last couple of weeks. And as I have studied this story again over the last couple of weeks with, with fresh eyes, I realized that the main lesson 
the main point of the story of David and Bathsheba, the reason we are given the story of David and Bathsheba, is that this story is given to us as a warning. It's given to us as a warning. We will see in the weeks that follow in this series that David's life is never the same after 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. David suffers a personal loss in his life. His life sort of descends into chaos. His family is pretty much destroyed. In addition to that, the nation that David leads, uh, it, it plunges into chaos and disunity that quite honestly, it will never come out of. And all of the chaos, all of the turmoil, all of the disunity, all of this function that David personally experiences and that the nation of Israel experiences can all be traced back to this one event we're looking at today. It can all be traced back to the story of David and Bathsheba. And when you realize that, you realize that this story is given to us to serve as a warning. It's given to us to serve as a warning of the way that a moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences. It's given to us as a warning of the way that a moment of disobedience can lead to a lifetime of devastation. And although sin can and is ultimately forgiven by God for the Christian, the consequences of sin can last well beyond anything we could ever imagine. This story is a, is a warning of the way that a moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences. I know that David wasn't thinking about that the night he stepped onto the roof of his palace. Our story begins for us in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. And as we read verse 1, we find an interesting detail. We're told that this story begins in, in the springtime. And it's the time, we're told, when the kings go off to war. And that's what you see in the first part of verse 1. It says, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war. You see, it, it rains in Israel in the winter months. And because it rains, the ground turns soft, the ground turns muddy, and, and, and troops, soldiers, and, and animals are not able to get any sort of firm footing. And so in this particular region of Israel and the surrounding regions, at the time that this story takes place, what would happen is wars between nations would actually cease during the winter months. And they would wait till spring when, when, when it stopped raining and the ground would firm up again. And then when the ground became hard again, any battles that had left undone, that were left unfinished before the wintertime would resume again in the spring. But in this particular spring, we find something very interesting. Although we are told that the Israelites are away at a battle, they are battling the, the Ammonites, and although the Israelite army is away from Jerusalem fighting in this particular battle, we are told that King David has decided not to join them. King David has decided to stay home. And that's what you read when you read verse 1 in its entirety. It says, In the spring, at the times when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroy the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah. And then it says this. It says, But David remained in Jerusalem. And when you take out the middle of that verse right there, what you realize this verse is telling us is in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, dot, 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 David stayed home. David decided not to join them. Why? Why? David was the best warrior that Israel had ever seen. David almost always joined his men in battle when there was a war. So why this particular spring did David decide to stay home? 
Honestly, we don't know. We can guess, we can theorize, but they would be just that, guesses and theories. The text doesn't tell us. But verse 1 is the first indication that we get in this story that something is not quite right here. Something is off. And that feeling that we get from verse 1, it continues on into verse 2. Pick it up here, verse 2. It says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Then, uh, uh, sorry, the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Verse 4, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, it says, and then she went back home. Stop right there. I want you to get the scene in your mind, okay? David right now is about the only able-bodied man in Israel. Because the Israelites are away at war, anybody who is of age, anybody who can fight in this battle is away fighting in this particular battle. So David right now is about the only able-bodied man in Jerusalem. And among other things, one of the things that that means is that David doesn't have a whole lot on his plate right now. There's just not a lot for the king of Israel to do. And we get that impression from verse 2 here when it says that one early evening, David gets up from his bed. And likely that's because David has just taken an afternoon nap. And he gets up from his nap, and he still doesn't have a whole lot on his plate. So we're told he goes to the roof of his palace for no other reason, I think, than just to get some fresh air and just to enjoy the scenery. So he goes to the roof of his palace, and when he's on the roof of his palace, there is something that catches his eye. From the roof of his palace in Jerusalem, David no doubt can see the roofs of of other homes that are near the palace. He can also even maybe see into some of the courtyards. And as David looks out from the roof of his palace, we're told that he sees a woman bathing. And it's not just any woman. We're told that this woman is very beautiful. And you need to understand the Bible does not comment all that much on appearance. So the fact that we're told this woman is very beautiful, it tells us something. This woman is stunning. This woman is gorgeous. And because she is bathing, this woman is likely naked. And David sees her. And I would imagine in that moment, there is a feeling that comes over David that if we're honest with ourselves, probably all of us in this room have felt at one time or another. It's that rush, right? That rush of passion, that rush of lust, that rush of adrenaline, that that rush of, of possibility. Probably all of us have felt it at one time or another. And when we feel that feeling, we know that we have a choice. We can either cut that feeling off at the past, or we can choose to indulge it. We can, we can choose to do something else to try and make that feeling go away, or we can choose to cultivate that feeling. We can choose to allow that feeling to grow. David, David decides to do the latter. We're told he sends one of his messengers to find out who this particular woman is. And 20, 30 minutes later, the messenger comes back to the palace and says, uh, David, this, this woman is, is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the, the daughter of Eliam. David, this woman is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the, the daughter of Eliam. Now, those two names, Uriah and Eliam, probably don't mean much to us unless you've heard this story taught before, but those two names would mean something to David. The reason why is because as you read through 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll see that both Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and Eliam, Bathsheba's father, were a part of David's mighty men. Who were David's mighty men? Well, David had throughout his life an inner group of soldiers. There were only about 30 or 40 in total. 
And they fought alongside David in all the fiercest battles in David's life. You could think of them as David's special forces, David's SEAL Team 6. You can even think of them as David's secret service. They, they were with David whenever he fought. Well, what both Bathsheba's husband Uriah and Bathsheba's father Eliam were a part of these mighty men. What does that mean? That means two things. First of all, it means that David knows that Bathsheba right now is home alone. Uriah is one of the best soldiers that Israel has, therefore Uriah is away at battle. Bathsheba is home alone. The other thing it means, I think, is I think it means that David knows Bathsheba. As the daughter of one of David's mighty men, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that David saw Bathsheba grow up. As, as the wife of one of David's mighty men, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that David attended their wedding. That David had Uriah and Bathsheba over at his palace on several occasions for, for dinner, for drinks, for something like that. David, I think, knows Bathsheba. And the fact that David knows Bathsheba, and the fact that David knows Bathsheba is married, and the fact that David himself is married, and the fact that Bathsheba is the daughter of one of his closest friends, the wife of one of his closest friends, any one of those things should have stopped anything David was intending to do right in its tracks. It should have stopped anything David was intending to do right in that moment, but it didn't. Because you see, if there's one weakness that David seems to have in his life, it is in the area of sexual temptation. Simply put, David has an appetite for women. We see this in 2 Samuel 3, for example, when we're told at this point in David's life, he has at least seven wives, seven wives all at the same time. Also, as we read through 2 Samuel, we see that over time, David has collected for himself concubines. These are women that David keeps at the palace for no other purpose than just to satisfy his sexual desires. David is not used to saying no to a sexual urge within him. And David doesn't do that here either. And so he sends a couple of messengers to grab Bathsheba and to bring Bathsheba to the palace. And Bathsheba comes to the palace, and as it says there, very simply in verse 4, it says, and he slept with her. David slept with her. David commits an adultery. David cheats on his own wives. He cheats on another man's wife. David commits an affair. David commits a sin. And then, after what, maybe two hours of passion at most, we are told that Bathsheba goes home. And you see that at the end of verse 4, it says, and then she went back home. And that phrase is meant to tell us that in David's eyes, this was never intended to be anything more than just a one-night stand. This was never intended to be anything more than just the scratching of some sort of sexual itch. And the second Bathsheba walked out of the palace, I think David was anticipating that Bathsheba would walk out of his life forever and, and that there would be no talk of this affair ever again. But that's what leads me to what I said at the beginning of this message. Remember what I said is the main lesson I think we're supposed to get from this message. It's the way, right, that a moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences. And as we read on in this story, we see the first consequence from this night of passion, from this moment of sin. Because a month or so after this affair was committed, Bathsheba sends a letter to David. And what does the letter say? You see it in verse 5. It says, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. The first consequence of this night of passion. The first consequence of this sin. And it's at this point in the story that our story starts to go downhill very quickly. Adultery in Israel is a capital offense. Uh, it's punishable by death. 
And since David is about the only able-bodied man in Israel at this time, in a couple of months when Bathsheba begins to show, the rumors are going to start to fly, and it's not going to be very hard for people to start connect the dots. And David and Bathsheba can both be killed for what they have done. And so David decides that he needs to find a way to cover up his sin. And so he begins thinking, and he realizes if he can somehow get Bathsheba's husband Uriah off the battlefield into Jerusalem, and if he can somehow get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba and sleep with Bathsheba quickly, then in eight months or so when this baby is born, that maybe people will be a little bit fuzzy on the timeline, and maybe they think this baby will be Uriah's baby. And so that's exactly what David does. He calls Uriah off the battlefield under the guise of wanting to get an update on the war. Brings him to Jerusalem, and David ultimately orders Uriah to spend two nights in Jerusalem in the hopes that one of those two nights, David will go home and he will sleep with Bathsheba. In fact, one of those nights uh, that Uriah will go home and sleep with Bathsheba. In fact, one of those nights, David actually gets Uriah drunk, thinking that his passions will be aroused and he will surely sleep with his wife. But both nights, Uriah refuses to do that. Why? Because Uriah is a noble man. And Uriah cannot think of sleeping with his wife while his fellow soldiers are sleeping on the battlefield. And so instead of going home and sleeping with his wife, Uriah instead sleeps on a cot. He sleeps on a mat outside the palace where everybody can see him. And it's after the second failed attempt that David gets for Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba that we are hoping that David will wake up, that David will come to his senses, and that David will recognize that there is something, or better, someone who is, who is conspiring against him, who is trying to get him to confess, who is trying to get him to own what he has done. But that's what leads us to another consequence of sin. I remember the last time I, I taught this story, one of the things I talked about is the way that sin is described sometimes in Scripture as like a force, or even sometimes like an animal, which is seeking to overpower us. This is the image that we are given in Genesis chapter 4, when God says to Cain, right before Cain is about ready to murder Abel, God says to Cain this, he says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is to master you, but you must overcome it. And one of the things that we learn from Scripture is that one of the consequences of sin is more sin. Sin gives birth to sin. When we open ourselves up to sin, we find it much easier to keep on sinning. This is what Henry David Thoreau is getting across in that famous quote when he says, After the first blush of sin comes the indifference. After the first blush of sin comes a numbness to sin. And that's exactly where David is right now. He is numb to sin. And that's what causes David to come up with plan B, which is the most wicked plan that he has. Recognizing that he cannot get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, David instead decides that Uriah needs to be done away with. And so David sends Uriah back to the battlefield. And when Uriah gets back to the battlefield, David gives commands to Joab, the commander of the Israelite army. He says to Joab, I want you to put Uriah in harm's way. I want you to put Uriah in the midst of a battle where he is certain to be killed. And Joab follows the king's orders. And sure enough, Uriah is killed. And at that point, what has David become? He has become a murderer. David is a murderer. But David seems absolutely unfazed by this. Of course, right? Because in, in his mind, the plan has worked out even better than he could have ever initially imagined. Because now that Uriah is dead, what does that mean? 
That means that David now can marry Bathsheba. That means that David can now add this very beautiful woman to his collection of women. And that's exactly what David does. He marries Bathsheba. And now the son that is born to Bathsheba in eight months, very few people will question the legitimacy of this child. David has committed the perfect crime. Or so he thinks. You know, there's something else that's interesting about sin. Have you noticed that when people commit sin, very rarely do they do it out in the open. Very rarely do they do it out in public. No, sin is usually committed in some seedy motel somewhere. It's usually committed in some back room or some back alley. It's usually committed only after the the door is closed and the, the shades are drawn and the lights are turned off. Or at the very least, it's only committed after we sort of looked over our shoulders to make sure that nobody is watching. And why do we do that? We do that because deep down we know that sin is wrong. And we know that sin carries consequences with it if we get caught. And so we think if we somehow can cover our tracks then no one's going to see us and we won't get caught and we won't have to suffer the consequences. But if you notice how it never seems to work out that way, sin always seems to get figured out, doesn't it? It may take decades. I think of all that's going on with Bill Cosby right now, right? It may take decades. But sin always has a way of getting found out. Why? Because it does not matter how many doors we close. It does not matter how seedy the motel, how off the beaten path it is. It does not matter how many lights we turn off. There is one who can see everything that we are doing. And he is able to make sure that we are held accountable for what we have done. And that one is God. We almost forgot about him, didn't we? You may have noticed in this message, I have not mentioned God very much. That's been deliberate. And the reason why is because it's clear as David was doing what he was doing, he was not thinking about God. And that is made clear in 2 Samuel 11 and the fact that God's name is not mentioned once in this passage until the very last verse. In fact, until the very last sentence. And that is uh, to show us that, that as David was doing all that he was doing, he was not thinking about God. But though David was not thinking about God, God was thinking about David. And that's what we see. Look with me at verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11. It says, after the time of mourning was over, that's the mourning for Uriah's death, it says, David had Bathsheba brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then it says that at the end of the verse, it says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing David has done displeased the Lord. Though David was not thinking about God, God was thinking about David. And God decided it was time to hold David accountable for what he had done. And so David's, God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. And we don't have time today to look at this confrontation. If you do discovery questions this week, you will get a chance to look at it. It's one of the classic scenes in Scripture. But after Nathan confronts David for his sin, God then gives David the consequences for what he has done. Pick it up here in chapter 12, verse 9. This is David receiving the consequences for what he has done. God says to the prophet Nathan the following, verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? 
He said, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Verse 10, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me, God said, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm gonna bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And here we see the consequences that God gives David for his actions. In fact, there are two major sins that David commits in this story, right? The sin of adultery and the sin of murder. For each sin, David gets a consequence. For the sin of adultery, God says to David, David, because you were unfaithful, your wives are now going to be unfaithful to you. Your wives are now going to cheat on you. That's verse 11. Oh, and by the way, David, verse 12, you did what you did with Bathsheba in private. I'm going to make sure your wives cheat on you in public. You're going to be humiliated before all Israel. That's the consequence for adultery. The consequence for murder, verse 10, God says, Now, David, the sword is never going to depart your house. And what God is saying by that is, David, your family now is always going to be marked by violence. It's always going to be marked by destruction. And you want to see the fulfillment of this consequence? Come back next week. And you will see the destruction and the violence that marks David's family. Two sins that David commits, two major consequences. And then you read on in the story and you see that there is a third consequence. Because of what David has done, God says this child that has been born to you, David, is going to die. And sure enough, a few days later, the child gets sick and the child dies. Three excruciating consequences. All for ultimately one moment of sin. All for what? Two hours of passion. And if I had the opportunity to sit David down and to interview him, to ask him five or six questions, I think one of the questions that I would ask David would be, David, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was that night of passion with Bathsheba Was that rush that you got, was that feeling of of ecstasy for those few moments, that feeling of pleasure, David, was it worth all that came from that? Was it worth all the destruction? Was it worth all the devastation? David, was it worth it? And I know ultimately that I don't have to ask David that question. Because we all know how David would answer, right? Of course it wasn't worth it. Of course it wasn't worth it. Whatever David got from that one moment with Bathsheba, whatever itch was scratched, whatever feeling that he got, that was not worth all the devastation that came from it. That was not worth all the destruction that came from it. And if David had the opportunity to live his life over again, You better believe that when David got to the roof of the palace and he saw Bathsheba, you better believe that David would have made a different decision. Of course it wasn't worth it. And brothers and sisters, I am here to tell you this weekend that that is always the case with sin. That is always the case with sin. Whatever we get from a moment of sin... Whatever feeling, whatever rush, whatever pleasure, whatever passion, whatever we get from a moment of sin, 
is never worth the consequences that can come from it. It's never worth the devastation that can come from it. A moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences, and the consequences are never worth whatever we would get from that moment of sin. And that's why as I was preparing for this passage this weekend, my my burden this week was to warn you, to warn you because I love you, to warn you in order to protect you because I don't want you to make a mistake this week that can lead to consequences beyond what you can ever imagine. Listen, in a church this size, unfortunately, I have little doubt That there is someone who is attending these three services this weekend who has decided that this is the weekend that they're going to cheat on their spouse. You have a coworker, you have someone at the gym who has made it clear by their glances, that has made it clear by the words that they have spoken to you, that they want a little bit more than friendly banter. And for weeks you have resisted him, for weeks you have said no. But this past week you got in a fight with your spouse. And things are tough at home. And yesterday afternoon, you sort, of, you sort of resolved to yourself, this week is the week I'm going to do it. This is the week I'm going to finally do something just for myself. And you're going to have that affair. And I know you think you have found a way to cover your tracks so that no one will be able to find out. But I don't care how many tracks you try to cover, there is one who sees everything that you do. And this act on Wednesday afternoon, on Thursday morning, it is going to set into place a chain reaction of events that's going to lead to destruction in your marriage. It's going to lead to emotional scarring in your children that will take years, maybe decades, to undo. And it's going to lead to the loss of everything that you hold dear right now. And the question I have for you is, will it be worth it? Will it be worth it? Will whatever you get from that moment, will it be worth all the devastation that it causes? Will it be worth it? On Friday night, someone's going to go to a party. And they're going to have one too many beers. They're going to have one too many glasses of wine. And when the party's over and people start going home, you're not going to want to deal with the stress of getting an Uber and then having to go and get your car the the next morning. And so you're going to do that self-evaluation. You're going to say, you know what? No, I think I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. uh, It's not very far away. I can drive home. I'm okay. And your family's not going to be the only family that suffers loss because of that decision. And the question I have is, will it be worth it? Will that buzz that you get, will that hour and a half of feeling relaxed, will it be worth all the loss that comes from it? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Chris, these are worst-case scenarios that you're talking about. And you're right. They are worst-case scenarios. But worst-case scenarios happen every day. Yesterday, 27 worst-case scenarios happened. As on average, 27 people lose their lives every day because of a drunk driving accident. And every single time we sin, that's what we're risking. We're risking the worst case scenario happening. So the question is, is it worth it? Whatever we get from that moment of sin, is it worth all that can come from it? Albert Tate, a pastor in in Monrovia, he said this. 
He said, sin is the absolute greatest ride we can have that will lead us to our destruction. Sin is the absolute greatest ride that we can have that will lead us to our destruction. I had a, I had a silly, insignificant, but, but very illustrative example of this yesterday. Yesterday, on my drive to work, as I was coming to church here to, to, to preach last night, it seemed like the whole world was conspiring against me to get to church. Have you ever had those, those days before, those mornings before? I hit every single light, and, and the worst drive I've ever seen before were on the road yesterday afternoon. And, and the final straw for me, I was, on, I was on Imperial, where it's two lanes, you know? And I think there was one car that, that was messing with me. It was a black SUV, okay? The license plate was, no, I'm just kidding, I won't say that. It was a black SUV, and he was driving really slowly in front of me. So I changed lanes, and the SUV changed lanes and got in front of me again and started going slow. So I changed the other lane, and once again, the black SUV got in front of me again and started going slow. And I was getting so frustrated. And there was a moment where I was ready to do one of two things. Either begin tailgating him, you know, or I was ready to just put my foot on the gas and kind of whip around him and cut him off. And right as I was about ready to do that, this sermon came to mind. God has a way of doing that for me. And I realized, I realized all that could come from that decision. I could get a ticket, that would be the least of my worries, right? I could get in an accident. I could harm him. I could harm myself. And ultimately, because of that, my family who wasn't in the car, I, I would ultimately harm them. All for what? All to prove some little point that's going to be forgotten by that guy in 30 seconds? And I realized it wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it. And so that's why I plead with you this weekend. Don't do it. Don't do it. Whatever you were planning on doing this week, don't do. Don't commit that affair. Don't get behind the wheel of the car. Don't share that piece of gossip that you just got. You have no idea how it's going to come back to haunt you. Don't cheat on your final exam this week. Don't say yes to that shady business deal. When your family leaves on Thursday night and you're all alone, don't open up the computer and don't go to that website. And if you have done something wrong, make it right this week. Did you cheat on your taxes last month? File an amendment this week. Make it right before they catch you because it's just not worth the consequences. And if you're sitting here right now, and you're saying, Chris, you know what? I have tried to say no in this area, and I just can't seem to say no. And I'm thinking especially here about the area of, of pornography and lust. Then can I say to you this? Get help, okay? Get help. Men, we have a group that meets here on Monday nights. It's called the Men of Integrity. And this is a group that is especially set up for men who are struggling in the area of lust, specifically in the area of pornography. And this is a safe group, a safe environment to get accountability for this particular issue, to get help for this particular issue. If you cannot overcome this area, please go to the website and sign up for this group. But hear me, no sin is ever worth the consequences that can come from it. But at the same time you hear me on that, hear me on this, okay? If you have committed a sin and you're suffering the consequences for it, God can forgive you, and he wants to forgive you. 
And although the consequences of sin can last for a lifetime, the forgiveness of sin lasts even longer. It lasts into eternity. And as I said at the beginning, that's what David experiences. The forgiveness of God. Right after Nathan confronts David, immediately David recognizes what he has done. And so he says to David, you see it in verse 13, he says to Nathan, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And look at the next statement. Look at the next sentence. It says, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Immediately, David experiences the forgiveness of God. And not only does God forgive David, God is abundantly gracious to David. Yes, this child born to David and Bathsheba does die, but God follows up that child's death with another child. And this future child born to David and Bathsheba becomes the future king of Israel, becomes King Solomon. Out of this darkness, God brings incredible life. And though David does have to suffer the consequences of his sin for the rest of his life, David also gets God's grace and God's forgiveness. And that's important to recognize. Just because you are experiencing the consequences for sin does not mean that God hasn't forgiven you. Consequences for sin and forgiveness of sin are not contradictory. And God can take the consequences you are facing and he can do something amazing with them. He can bring grace to it. And if you're noticing a bit of a tension here, you're right. But this is a tension we find throughout Scripture because this is the tension that is in our God. Our God is a God of love and grace, and our God is also a God of justice. And by far the best illustration of this tension is the cross. You know, a lot of people think it's unfair that David's son has to die for something he didn't do, that the son of David has to die for what David has done. But what we don't find fair in this story is what we celebrate on the cross, isn't it? The son of David, Jesus, dying for something he didn't do. The son of David, Jesus, dying so that we can live. On the cross, we find both the consequences of sin and we find the forgiveness for sin. We find both God's grace and we find God's justice. That's why Isaac Watts wrote what he wrote in that famous hymn when he said, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Did ever such love and sorrow, did ever such grace and justice meet? or thorns compose so rich a crown. And then do you remember the last stanza of that hymn? Do you remember how it goes? It goes, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. For one moment in his life, David forgot to give God his all. And though he was forgiven for it, He suffered the consequences for it. And my prayer is that we do not make the same mistake as David. As I was preparing this message this past week, I thought to myself, in nearly five years, this is perhaps the most serious and the most sobering message I've ever given. But I also thought to myself, it may also be the most important. Because a moment of sin can lead to a lifetime of consequences. And no consequence is ever worth what we can get from that moment of sin. I pray that this week we don't forget that. I pray that every week we don't forget that. Would you bow your heads with me?
God, I know, uh, Lord, I know that you have given this message this weekend as a warning, Father. Because there is someone here who is about ready to make a decision, God, that could change the entire course of their life. And Father, you don't want them to make that decision because of what it's going to do. And so God, I thank you that you love us so much to warn us, God. Only a loving God would warn us. And Father, I pray that we would respond to that love in the only way that it makes sense to respond, God. That we would give you our soul, our life, our all. God, I pray that we would both resist sin this week, God. We would recognize that it's not worth it. And God, I also pray, Father, that if we have made a mistake, and all of us have, God, we would recognize that you, you have forgiven us for it, Father. And though the consequences of sin can last for a lifetime, God, the forgiveness of sin lasts even longer. So God, we thank you for, for, for your word. We thank you for the truths that are in it, Father. And we ask now that you enabled us, you would help us to live it out. We love you, Lord, we thank you. And we ask all this in your son's name.